0: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of A Podcast About Audio Drama and the Creative Process. I'm W. Keith Timms, writer and podcaster, creator of The Book of Constellations. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about the show, their methods, their struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of Radio Outcast. written by Maria Fernanda Vida and JT LaChausse, and produced by Anne Hughes Radio Outcast is a time traveling fantasy western when Helix the messenger god of sound gets yanked from the 1980s and sent to the 1880s by her abusive ex-lover the god of time she must forge unlikely alliances with two humans Jesse a cowboy out for revenge and Charles, a con man running from his past. The three of them embark on a journey across the American West, each with their own goals and secrets waiting to be revealed. The team has produced several Episode Zero preludes that introduce the characters. The first full episode, 1A, titled Lone Flats, finds the three protagonists arriving in the titular town and being drawn to a strange black obelisk found there. Listeners should be advised there is occasional course language in this episode. I spoke to Fernanda and JT via Zoom. Tell us a little bit about yourselves and what you do on the show.
1: So my name is Maria Fernanda Vidal Resaga. Uh, I'm the co-creator, co-writer, director. Sometimes I read a couple lines for secondary characters on uh, Radio Outcast.
2: So I'm JT LaChausse. I'm a, a co-creator, co-writer... I do the sound design for the show and sometimes like Fernanda I'll read a couple lines for an episode or two. So you both are the main writers on the show, is that right? Yeah, that's yes. correct. How did you guys
0: come to create this show and start working together?
1: <laughs> it's uh it's uh it's a fairly long answer <laughs> I I would say um JT and I met at our, so we both graduated from UCR with uh, MFAs in creative writing and writing for the performing arts. Our specialty was fiction. So we met in those workshops and um, at the time I came up with this idea. Basically, it's just, I've always wanted to tell a story with three protagonists, even though I know that's difficult to do. Additionally, I don't know if you you will recognize this reference at all, but I really wanted to echo what I think is the magic behind the anime Samurai Champloo. Uh,
0: I've um, seen Samurai Champloo, yeah.
1: Oh my god, yeah. So it's like my favorite of all time. <laughs> you know, you got three strangers who don't like each other meeting through, you know, certain circumstances and traveling across a country together together. Um, but primarily like during the end of an era, you know, the era of the samurai. So likewise, this is a story about three strangers who don't necessarily like each other, (laughs) forced together to travel across the U.S. uh, during the end of the cowboy era. I'm a speculative fiction writer and a historical fiction writer and this sort of mix both of those things. I knew I wanted the story to star a black cowboy, a lost goddess, and a white man. And that's mainly just down to the fact that like Westerns, as we all know, <laughs> are typically about cis straight white men and glorify this period of time without really like taking a look to examine all of the people who were left behind, you know, or forgotten or just straight up ignored during that period. Which is unfortunate because Westerns take place during this crux of like the Reconstruction era, the industrial era, the like Gilded Age. I mean, Grover Cleveland, who was the president at the time, he became president much in the same way that like Donald Trump did, which was a push toward conservative values following a little bit of progress, Mm -hmm. you know. That's why like this story in particular, but it was a huge task and that inspiration of Samurai Champloo and also like my later fondness of the original Gunsmoke radio show made it kind of obvious that this needed to be an audio drama. But what was even more obvious was, hey, is this is a lot. <laughs> I'm just a girl from SoCal. I need somebody else on this. And it was really obvious to me that it it needed to be JT. I didn't ask anybody else other than JT.
0: Well,
2: let me ask JT, how did
0: you get involved and what drew you to this project? What made you want to work on Radio Outcast?
2: So in the two-year program that is the MFA, Fernanda was the year above me. So I came in all bright-eyed, and I really respected her writing and the way that she worked with other people's writing. She seemed like just a very conscious creator, even whenever you're not the one creating, when you're responding to ideas that don't belong to you. And I thought that that was very... Motivating and inspiring, and so when she came to me with this script, I never, I hadn't seen Samurai Shampoo, although she got me to watch it, and I adored it. It was fascinating to listen to the passion that she had for this project. The vision was clear, and I think because the vision was clear, it was easy for me to hop on board and say, "Oh, okay." There were these ideas in the beginning that were so exciting to me, which was this Gilded Age. 1880s, end of the cowboy era. But we had to do a lot of historical research, as Fernando was explaining. We had to do a lot of genre research. Oh my gosh. Yeah, which was fun. <laughs> and as we researched the Western genre, you know, as Fernanda said, there's all of these mundane, repeated stories that became conventional to the Western. And we asked ourselves, how do we belong in Western storytelling? And the answer is we don't. So we had to make it our own. (laughs) (laughs) And thus enters this fantastical, technological sort of take on the 1880s or the way that we say is the only way that we could insert ourselves into the story is if a god fell from the sky and disrupted the order of things and that's what we did
0: historically as a genre the western has always been about questions of violence and civilization versus the wild right Mm -hmm. the stories that come out of westerns are about what are people willing to do to enforce the civilized order you know, when you always have the cowboy or the sheriff or the, the gunman who is the protagonist in Westerns, not always, but most of the time, there is someone who is outside of the normal civilization who has to come in and rely on violence in order to solve the problems mm-hmm. that the little town is, yep. is de- dealing with. And then, of course, at the end, um, he, because it's typically a man, um, rides away <laughs> um, and doesn't get to join in civilization. Civilization keeps its hands clean. Is violence something that you guys were wrestling with or wanted to talk about in Radio Outcast? Is that a theme that you come back to?
2: Yeah, I would I would certainly say so. Um, the episode that we're working on now is a lot about when is violence called for? When is violence moral? If it is, Jesse Rogers obviously wrestles with this a lot. Helix wrestles with questions of power and or violence as a goddess and all of that power the influence she has on human beings and Charles as the season goes along recognizes his power and how that could lead to violence
1: yeah I I would agree entirely I feel like violence is just kind of core to the genre but also to these characters I mean on a micro level the story is really about trauma and all of these characters all three of them have experienced trauma at one point Par for the course, I think. <laughs> they all
0: seem to be outsiders in their own way. Yeah. Charles Asgood is, he's a con man. He is on the outsides, on the fringes of society, scamming people. Jesse, mm-hmm. um, now, is he a criminal for hire or is he just a man willing to do whatever he can to, to get what he wants? How would you define him?
1: I would say he's uh, <laughs> he's just a man trying to get revenge and um, whatever that takes, so long as it doesn't impede on his particular brand of like morality
0: right you specify that he is a black cowboy and um, his his race seems to be central to a lot of conflict at the time you certainly don't see a lot of black characters um in traditional westerns
3: day one this is a diary of the bad hands god delivers us and the true record of a man fighting the dealer the first man they turn away and the last they want to turn their guns on I am that man, Jesse Rogers, the Southpaw. Just rolled up on the town of Lone Flats that day to buy some info off the first lead I'd had in years. Went to the saloon where I was meant to drop the cash. Just when I thought the bartender would take me to my contact, he told me the deal had changed. It was a town full of skunks. On top of money, they wanted me to steal from the town mayor. Something about a necklace with an emerald so big, it's got at least triple what I was going to pay. Could have said no. Gut told me to do the clean thing. But they had me by the balls. Knew I was desperate for any crumb leading me back to those bastards. Based on the whispers, they're too dangerous to sell out cheap.
0: Why did you want to include a a black cowboy in this story?
1: It felt necessary. I mean, cowboys were usually people in poverty who really needed jobs in the Reconstruction era. Studies have shown that there were at least like 4,000 black men who were cowboys at the time because it was good work to get. And um, usually people weren't as abused. I mean, racism was still a big thing. People couldn't go to the same like saloons, bars or brothels as the other cowboys and stuff. But it made sense as a profession. Yeah. And there's there's something
2: interesting happening. The Gilded Age comes up in our historical like survey textbooks as this sort of like reset on all of the discussions of race relations in America in the mid-1800s and now we're like and then there's the Gilded Age which is an era of corruption and politics and development of railroads and you're like wait what happened to all of these freedmen what's going on here where's the development of these yeah. communities what jobs are they doing now The thing is is that I'm listening to contemporary Westerns with straight white cis cowboys, and they're good. I mean, a lot of them are good. But when we were talking, like if there were 10 things that Fernanda brought that could not change, one was this cowboy needed to be a black man. And that that is a compelling element to this story in particular, Uh, a man whose father... 60s, 1860s, 1870s was considered free, but still living in America. Now he has Jesse who his father raised him under his wing, kept him very safe. And he's roaming as a cowboy at the end of the cowboy days. And so it's like, my days are numbered um, just when my days are not supposed to be numbered, you know? Mm. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that moves me, and something that's interesting in quick descriptions of the 1880s is we have a first wave of feminism. So we have this discussion mm-hmm. of Helix as this this powerful goddess and the relationship with her former partner Emmy, the goddess of time, and what's going on in power relations between just even two women. We have the art movements in the late 1800s with gay artists, and, and Charles Osgood being a gay man. Um, a lot of dandy sort of portrayal, Oscar Wilde rising as this figure a little bit later in the 1800s. But, um. mm-hmm. And then we have the state of race relations in America after the Civil War and the the tenure of Grover Cleveland, which is, you know, as Fernanda <laughs> mentioned, Heinous. bizarre populist politics, um, a little kowtowing here, a little kowtowing there. So... Even just broadly thematically, these three figures really are out of place, quote unquote, but in a real study of the time period, those were the movements happening. Those were the things that were really shaking and stirring in America and in in Britain as well.
0: Well, you know, I wanted to ask you about Helix because I think most people could sort of go, oh, it's a Western and we're going to get, you know, different (laughs) perspectives uh, from, you know, Charles Hosgood and from Jesse. And that sounds cool. And then, well, we're going to have a a goddess from 1980 that's also going to be in the show. And then we kind of go, wait, what? But I think that's a really interesting approach. So can you tell me a little bit about why, uh, what role Helix plays in this story and why you wanted to drop a goddess into the midst of all this?
1: When I decided I wanted to approach JT was when I was thinking about this goddess and um, anachronisms more than anything. Could there be anachronisms in this like story? Um, And I approached JT because I knew he was really interested in like this nation's history and not just that, but like all of the writing that I had seen from JT up until that point was all related to like pop culture and technology. And I just thought it would be really interesting and jarring to have that just rear its head in something that's very like classically, not necessarily quiet, but Westerns are often about, as you said, like desolation. They're about place. They're about like the vastness of like areas that were not necessarily known at the time. I I thought it could be fun to hit people over the head with yeah anyways there's going to be a walkman here um
2: <laughs> yeah there was something special about i remember you, you we were talking about okay i want this supernatural being to be an element of the show and she's she loves disco she loves djing that gives us an in for what we were familiar with a couple conversations later we were like wait let's not make it easy on ourselves. let's give it the audience <laughs> the idea that we have this character who has these powers and then immediately once you meet her, it's gone. And so it's <laughs> kind of saying like now we're going to talk about what former power looked like and who strips power away. Which of course is what the show is largely about, at least the origins of all of their, their traumas. Who gets to decide when the power that you have, you no longer have? Is it you? Is it systems? Is it uh, cultural ideas? Yeah, Helix, Helix I think is, is the real secret ingredient to the show.
0: Helix comes from 1980. And she goes back, she's sent back in time 100 years. Why
1: 1980? For the fun of it. <laughs> <laughs> 1987 had so much the best music. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was JT's idea to make her like some sort of music or sound goddess since this was going to be an audio drama. Um, And we thought it would be really funny and clever of us to do that. But 1987 just felt round. 1887 is like smack dab in the middle of like when most Western like media takes place. Mm -hmm. It takes place in the like late 80s.
0: I was wondering if there was a parallel between, you know, what was going on culturally um, in America at those times that you were trying to sort of highlight there.
2: If you listened to the people who were writing who had money, the late 1880s was the birth of culture, a re a rebirthing of culture. And if you listen to people who have the money who wrote articles about culture, the, ni- the late 1980s was the death of culture. And <laughs> we're trying to say you really need to start looking at the people, the, quote, little men, the being the Helixes, the Charleses, and the Jessies of the world, and question why you think that aesthetics or culture or interesting stories were or, quote, were not happening.
0: Why did you guys want to do this as an audio drama?
1: Yeah, coming back to, like, Samurai Champloo as a big source of inspiration, that show's all about... It it plays around a lot with sound and music. Uh, Nunjabez is, like, one of my favorite artists, Mm. rest Mm. in peace. Um, But, like, Lo-fi and hip-hop music just in general is, is all about that show. And knowing that I kind, we kind of wanted to bring an element of that, which is why we have this amazing composer, Samuel mm-hmm. Kinsella, who's the best. Realizing that we kind of wanted to hearken on like the 1980s and stuff, once that decision was made, it didn't feel like this would be feasible in any other genre. First of all, without like millions and millions of dollars, sure, right? This like was never gonna be done outside of prose, unless it was like a theater play or an audio drama. And um, yeah, old school radio shows are really cool. Why
2: radio, Outcast? So. One thing that we knew is that we had these these two inspirations. We had Gunsmoke, we had Samurai Champloo. It was the style of old radio shows, the sound of old radio shows, the way that action was conveyed, the way that narration was conveyed. That was a beacon for our storytelling. So we decided on the name pretty late in the game. We we spent about 18 months writing all of the episodes that we have now. Um, And toward the end there... We're like, what are, the, what are the themes that we have? And what we knew is we have a god of music. We have gadgets. We have this medium that we're using. So radio felt applicable. We also made fun acronyms for it. We had like the initial, one of the initial titles was Revenant, Angel, Dio, Inspector, Outlaw, like just funny, <laughs> silly, you know, we were doing everything we could to to make it work. And eventually we were like, okay, we know it's going to be radio. So what is the common thing here? And outcast. I think we were just in a text thread, texting all of these ideas back and forth, <laughs> like it was a blur. And then we landed on outcast at a certain point, because that's what they are. That's who the show is for. It's what the show is about.
0: Now, uh, Fernanda, you have you told me that you name your episodes 1A, 1B, as in different sides of a record. Why did you make that choice?
1: One was uh, just function, more than anything. Uh <laughs> After talking to other folks in the audio drama space who were amazing and really helpful as we were like moving into production and stuff, what kept coming up was your episodes are really long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you should consider breaking them up. And it turned out that splitting every episode in half was kind of perfect, and then um, just thematically made, made sense for us to have like an A side, B side of records
0: when i was looking at your episodes list they are longer than i'd say average um (laughs) well you know there's some people that do half hour shows like that's what i do for my show but then there's also people who do like you know 10 minute little mini bites but then you got people like paul bay the big loop who did one hour shows as well you know why why did you settle on sort of a longer form to the narration for these particular shows
2: I think that a large part of that is that we know the pace of a prose story and we were adoring fans of the audio drama. And so we had to marry those two in a way that felt right for us, but respectful to the genre. And so you'll notice like the pilot, it's two sides to an hour each. But as we go through these next episodes that that we're launching now, uh, two ways already out, uh, that one's landing around 30 and the next episode will be around 30 they start to get a little shorter we knew going in that we were going to have what we were joking as the mega pilot it was going to be like a <laughs> just a massive beast of a thing and right. we never settled against that no matter what advice we got there was something in us when we looked at the script we were like nothing can be removed this is the story
0: well you you also have like you got three short what about 10 minutes each prologues introducing each of the characters you're setting up the world right i think is that is that what you were trying to accomplish with this first episode Mm -hmm.
1: yeah it's setting up the world so setting up hey this is a western but it's not your typical western here's why it's not a typical western also we have three main characters and all of them are going to say their side of the story they also have to meet somehow so it's just a lot to juggle
2: yeah and once we split that First pilot, Because the pilot, you know, before we did the A-side, B-side, the pilot would have been an hour and 40 minutes or something. We realized A-side really does the job of a pilot. Helix has been stripped of her godly powers. She's stranded in a desert town. Jesse's concentrated on finding the man who killed his father. And Charles is slinking about and he's trying to stay alive with these orders from this, like, threatening, imposing god. I like
0: the shifting narration. You know, and I think it's also interesting that each of the characters seems to have their own kind of confidant. Charles is talking to the walkman that he's carrying around. Jesse has a journal that he refers to, and then Helix has a has is is a bird, Coda is the bird. Is that
1: <laughs> Yeah. Is
0: that like a, a a little sidekick? No.
1: The idea is to not stand out. You see those people walking down the street? Hideous. Those dresses would get you kicked out of any decent club. Coda. find me something as terrible so we'll fit in. Go with something canary yellow. At least it'll match my earrings. It's just like Emmy to drop me in a whorehouse. You know how petty she is, Coda. Yeah, it's her little familiar. Um, there's going to be more information on Coda in the future, but yeah, it's her little friend probably one of her few friends yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: well i mean i think about you know i think about novels like well game of thrones comes to mind where mm-hmm. you know, every chapter is from a different perspective but i think you're sort of weaving the different perspectives well in this story and we're really getting a sense of who these people are by shifting from one person to the next how do you feel about the the first episode
1: Honestly, I still just can't believe we managed to pull it off. It's really
0: weird. <laughs> um, like, what's weird about it? Uh, it was
1: just a, it was just a fleeting thought in my head that wouldn't leave me alone, and then a thought that JT and I just kept talking about at like the local college pub and then a thing that JT Anne and I were like laughing about in his like office and then it's just it's really interesting how quickly things get done but also how slow they all took shape it, when you look mm-hmm. back on things you know and just how big of a difference like every single little decision that we made over these last 18 months 2 years made to the final product i'm still overwhelmed so whenever i listen to the first episode i'm just happy <laughs>
2: When we started it, Fernanda was in the process of graduating with her (laughs) master's. When we ended it, I was in the process of graduating myself. And this was when COVID started up toward the end. And there was an election somewhere in there. Fernanda had to move houses. A lot of the team had, you know, deaths in the family. A lot of things were happening. Lots of big things, challenges. And at points, we would talk about how difficult it was. But we met every single week. And I think that's important with these sorts of things is yeah. you remember that it can be a stabilizing force, not just another thing on your plate. And we would meet every, like I think, Tuesday in my mm-hmm. office my little TA office we had, and we would get to work and we, time would slip by. We'd be talking for four hours and we thought it was only 30 minutes. <laughs> what do you guys struggle with?
1: Burnout, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, especially like in the audio drama space, my respects to everybody who does this on their own, you know, mm. like it's, it's incredible to do this type of work on your own. Having JT and having Anne, I like. I, I don't know how this project would have ever like even come up off the ground. You know,
2: there is this meme that, that kind of does some explanation. It's Lady <laughs> Lady Gaga is getting interviewed. She's early in her career, and he's asking her how she did what she did. Not that I'm comparing us to Lady Gaga. I mean, like, let's not be crazy. But she says, "Bus club, another club, another club. No sleep." Another club, another club. And that's the joke we make is that's that's how it was, especially in the production phase. Once we yeah. finished writing, our once a week meetings became twice a week, three times a week meeting with the actors, the pre-recording meetings, the post-recording meetings, the script editing meetings, preparation for sound design. We just had to find the times that worked for all three of us, especially when we started moving to different time zones. Anne is now in Hawaii. Fernanda is now in California. I am now in Wisconsin. So it's... it's I wonder that this continues to happen. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: right, How do you measure success?
1: Initially, I felt a lot of guilt, which was, I, I've committed all these people to something that I don't even know if it's going to work. So for me, like measuring success is the people I hitched onto this train, happy with the work that we've created together. For me,
2: before this, and I still do a little bit, I used to work on in literary publishing, So I was very familiar with reviews and the stars and the points and the good and the bad and the ugly. So I knew that that was something I needed to stay away from when it came to releasing this show. What I was interested in was conversations happening around it, not just a closed circuit of a critique that's good or bad, but a conversation that can happen with people, something that makes buzz. That helps. That helps make the show come alive in other ways outside of our little unit, but like Fernanda says, it really matters how the team feels, how everybody in the team, anybody who's worked on it.
1: I think one of the moments where, like, this felt like the show is going to mean something to people is one of our actors, Ivory Amor de Francisca, who's amazing Afro-Latino actor. He, like, opened up to us and told us that when he saw the casting call for Jesse, he was just so incredibly excited and relieved to see more art where, like, Black men were cowboys, and since then, I feel like any time we hear something like that, anything resonating with this art and stuff, it, that that's kind of all that matters. And that's why these characters matter to us. The story's kooky. The story's weird. I mean, Goddess gets plopped down in 1887. She curses a lot. <laughs> she says a lot of ridiculous things. Charles goes on for like five minute monologues about himself. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's cool, and making art is cool, and more people should make more art. Have any of you in this wretched place ever read a book that didn't have little pretty pictures in it?
3: I told you. Take yourself out.
0: No doubt, he could have struck me had he aspired to. I, I spent a whole childhood in the West, and the years after at the Pharaoh table. Now, I know these sorts of men, they knew the difference between a paralyzing shot and one that kills. But, death was on my side now. Instead, he struck the corner of the Sony machine. to. We are
1: going back, way back.
0: That's like trying to pull a game out of the fourth
1: quarter by plotting well, the 60s. 70s, 80s, 80s, 80s. What
0: are you... As the story progresses, the characters are drawn into strange events, as you might expect with the time travel adventure. But Radio Outcast's cast of outcasts celebrates and subverts the genre, bringing the audience into an outsider's perspective of a familiar theme. Radio Outcast can be found on most major podcast platforms or see our show notes for a link to their homepage. The First Episode Of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them, and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. The show's webpage is thefirstepisodeof.com. If you're an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, send an email to thefirstepisodeof at gmail.com. If you like down-to-earth sci-fi audio drama, check out my show, The Book of Constellations, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time.